Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving So you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing One, two, three! Come writers and critics, publicize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the change won't come again Don't speak too soon for the wheels to spin And there's no telling who that is naming Hello, vast swath of the, of the listening public. Welcome to the inaugural episode of this podcast. I am Brevin, and I have with me Thomas. Hello. And Stephen. Hello. Or as we like to call him, Stephen. It, it, they do like to call him the, me that, and I do not like it. Uh-huh. Well, for our first topic today, we need to decide what to call this podcast. Important Stephen, question, really. Yeah. Do you have a suggestion? So personally, I'm in favor of this metaphysical wasteland. I think it, it correctly encapsulates the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. Uh, the the malaise term, even. Oh, ooh, the malaise even, yes. Uh, or odd, uh, whichever mm. number you prefer. But uh, yes, I, I, I do contend that this metaphysical wasteland is important, especially given that we are going to be discussing, spoiler alerts, but we're going to be discussing the, the important topic of ethics uh, which has a particular implication for the uh, current cultural, uh, shall we say, situation we're in. Mm. And uh, Thomas, I believe you had a different idea? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, Contra Stephen, um, I think we should go with the problem of reading. And the problem uh, of I, reading? The problem right. with reading. <laughs> wow. So um, I think we might just take this to a vote. Let us take a quick vote. Um, all in favor of uh, this metaphysical wasteland, please say uh, Socrates uh, was a fool. Bite your tongue. <laughs> and all in favor of the problem with reading, please say Occam started it all. Occam started uh, Occam, it all? Occam started it all? Occam started it all. It's unanimous. <laughs> it's all his fault. We've got to be real here. All right, so with that, let's move into the immediate substance of the podcast. First up, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? That is an excellent question, and I am drinking the excellent Thanksgiving blend of Starbucks coffee. Uh, it is unfortunately fast season right now. Well, fortunately and unfortunately fast season right now, so I'm taking a break from the alcohols and uh, sticking with really crappy Starbucks coffee that rewarmed re in the microwave. Mm. Uh, mm. Thomas, what are you drinking right now? Uh, today's Thomas is brought to you by Black Tea with Milk. Uh, need, need more Thomas? Try Black Tea with Milk. That was deep. Uh, that was really good and catchy. For me, I am sustaining uh, soul and holding mind and body together with some lovely Trader Joe's generic bland, uh, brand uh, uh, Scotch whiskey mm. blend. I have no pretensions about its quality, but it tastes pretty good, and it is my goal in life to not be able to distinguish between quality and non-quality items, because then I'll have to pay more. All right. <laughs> next, yeah. yeah. Um, next up, uh, Thomas, what are you 
reading right now? Um, right now, b- besides um, After Virtue, I'm reading a book called uh, A Gentleman in Moscow uh, by Amor Crowley's? Amor, wait, hold on. Amor, Amor, I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name, but um, Tales? Um, but anyway, it is a story about a unrepentant um, aristocrat in um, sort of a immediately post-revolutionary Russia. Um, uh, it is sort of a mixture between a, um, like someone has lots of constraints on their life uh, tale. So like, how do they thrive within some set of constraints? And um, also, uh, I don't know, a kind of nostalgia for the sort of aristocratic European past um, uh, type story sort of mashed together. Okay. Uh, Steven, what are you reading right now? That is a good question. Uh, I am reading right now uh, Walker Percy's The Thanatos Syndrome. Um, It's a novel where you have a psychiatrist who just got out from a tiny stint in prison uh, for a relatively minor offense and much to his shock and dismay is finding that quite a few of his patients whom have returned to him are exhibiting very odd symptoms of somewhat losing their humanity, um, becoming much more mild and, uh, but, but with enhanced uh, thinking powers in essence, or that, that phrase that rather poorly, uh, but uh, in, in essence, they, one example given when asked where Chicago, they do not say, well, it's about 40 miles away from here, or even ask, why are you asking me that? They instead almost look as if they are consulting a map and will give like precise coordinates for the city of Chicago. So it's it's kind of a discussion on, uh, as Walker Percy is apt to do, what it is to be human. All right. Uh, what about yourself? My... What are you reading? I am reading Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile, which is a fascinating book uh, that I've only read the prologue to, but intend to read more. Um, more or less, if you can look past his disdain for every human being besides himself, he has some very interesting ideas uh, and reframes a lot of institutions, uh, concepts, everything from uh, politics and health to um, the finance market, etc., cetera, uh, in terms of uh, three concepts, which are fragile, resistant, or resilient, and anti-fragile. Fragile things break under stress. Uh, resilient things endure, but anti-fragile things are this very special class that when subjected to stress actually grow stronger. So Mm -hmm. a lot of his project seems to be investigating that. Uh, One easy example is our immune system. If we are entirely cut off from germs and have no stress on it, we will uh, develop no immunities. We will basically be dead if the first time that we encounter anything like a cold. Um, So the human body needs to be exposed to stressors in order to gain strength. Um, And he draws out that analogy to numerous things, and it seems very interesting. Um, He holds everyone besides himself in utter contempt, um, and he's fun to read. Hey, hey, hold on. Nassim Nicholas Taleb, there's like five people that he likes. Um, One of them is powerlifting coach uh, Mark Ripto, and the other four are just like some Sicilian barbers. Hey, and it's also not contempt if you really are better than everyone. 
Wow, that would just be being rightly ordered to the world. Um, if, you, to, if you are exactly. better than everyone. He's actually the most well-adjusted person out there. To Taleb also um, also spends a lot of time uh, using calculus to prove that uh, the Lebanese are white. And um, let's see, uh, other stuff. How do you use calculus to prove that someone's white? Uh, We're going to move just, on to our just, next... Just read his Twitter feed. <laughs> We're going... We are going to move on to the next topic, hitting the 15-minute mark here and have and having uh, discussed nothing. But first, we will be looking at chapters one and two of Alasdair McIntyre's After Virtue, a fantastic book. Uh, Stephen, I neglected to prepare um, a brief autobiography or anything of McIntyre or just sort of his place in, in history. Um, he's still alive. Uh, but do you mind filling that in before I get to the summary of chapters one and two? I can fill in a little bit. Uh, so McIntyre really showed up um, on the state. Well, he's, he's a philosophy professor. He started teaching around uh, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and what was the late 60s? Maybe, maybe late 50s. In any case, he started teaching around then. Um, pretty quickly rose to popularity in no small part due to After Virtue, which came out in the early 80s. He started working a lot with Anscombe's idea that the current state of moral philosophy is in deep trouble. And in fact, most of the conversations that are going on around ethics are almost meaningless. And so he, he was one of the people to really codify why that was and really push it. And in essence, revitalize much of virtue ethics. Um, he currently is Professor Emeritus at Notre Dame. He speaks every year at the Notre Dame Ethics Conference, as well as quite a few other places. I think he's still, even though he's retired technically, he's still pretty busy. And pretty much every every year that I've seen him at uh, Notre Dame, the you know the place is packed with people wanting to to hear from him. And these are he's these very are active some, for an eighty nine year old. Surprisingly active for an eighty nine year old. Yes, um, and so he it. TLDR, he is the one that one of the one of the few that really revitalized virtue ethics when it was on the precipice of completely exiting the ethical conversation. All right, thank you, Stephen. Okay, so let's get into chapters one and two. Uh, first, I would like you to imagine a scene. There has been a nuclear apocalypse, utter devastation, civilizations wiped off of the map, and from that disaster is born a great hatred of science and knowledge and scientists and everyone who brought us to the situation that we're in. So this, all the scientists are killed, their books are burned, the universities are raised, um, everything is wiped clean. But then people calm down and a few years later, people start coming back and they start finding half-burned books and scraps of articles and they start trying to figure out what all words like neutrino or atomic weight and what all that means, and trying to build science back together, because as, as it turns out, it's useful for a lot of things. But they don't have the whole picture, so they talk about chemistry, biology, they memorize element tables, but they're not really doing science. They've lost the underlying substance and have fragments, uh, just small pieces of a much larger whole that used to work, but they only have a small part of it. Now, McIntyre asks the question, is philosophy in that world, where science has been destroyed and then haphazardly rebuilt, would it notice the underlying disorder to the base of knowledge? And his answer is no, because philosophy like that can only be descriptive. His thesis, which if you have the wonderful third edition, 
um, on uh, page two is he cross-applies this to the realm of ethics, as Stephen implied, that we're in basically the same situation, that all of the content and underlying knowledge of ethics has been torn away, and we are here scrabbling over the fragments. The, uh, the thesis reads um, is that the hypothesis which I wish to advance is that in the actual world which we inhabit, the language of morality is in the same state of grave disorder as the language of natural science in the imaginary world. What we possess, if this view is true, are the fragments of a, con of a conceptual scheme, parts which now lack those contexts from which their significance derived. We possess, indeed, simulacra of morality, and we continue to use many of the key expressions. But we have, very largely, if not entirely, lost our comprehension, both theoretical and practical, or morality. So, in other words, we are in trouble. And McIntyre posits that uh, there was an event that caused this. Now, we don't have any massive event like a nuclear apocalypse, uh, nuclear apocalypse that caused this. So what is it? Yep, yep, I know. Uh, but his posit is that this, what if this all happened right when we started keeping track of ethics as a field? If that were true, if we started tracking the changes in language after the disorder had uh, occurred, much like the natural scientists, we wouldn't be able to notice because as far as we knew, that's all that there was. So with that disquieting suggestion, he gets into chapter two and tries to set out where we are today. And he starts off just by setting out some competing arguments on things like abortion, just war. We all recognize the arguments. People make them in our society all the time. And he has three observations about all of these arguments that seemingly have no end. The first is that they can't be measured up against each other. The atomists' assumptions and a Kantian assumptions both mean that no matter what they talk about, they will always get back to their premises. The argument can only go until people reach what their core beliefs are, and then it can go no further because there's no arguing those beliefs up against each other. They can't be compared. Second, all of the arguments that we make about ethics all seem to assume that there's some kind of impersonal standard, even if we all disagree what that standard is. And finally, the way that we talk about ethics and philosophy assumes that moral philosophy has been a continual conversation across the ages with everyone just responding to and adding to the people who came before them. Hegel, Marx, Locke, Kant, we all pretend like they're all in one conversation and talking to each other. And McIntyre argues that this abstracts from the place and the actual content and meaning of all this uh, moral philosophy and is functionally worthless. So how can this all be true? And here McIntyre introduces his big uh, at least big in chapter two and three, his big boogeyman, which is emotivism. And emotivism is simply the idea that the words, phrases, the statements that we make are only the reflections of our feelings and sentiments. So if we say this is good, all we're really saying is that I approve of this for an emotional reason. There is no moral content that one can abstract to and hold up as a criteria. We're all just approving based on our feelings. And he goes on later, uh, to argue that this is false as a theory of meaning, but it may be correct as a theory of use. In other words, that it accurate, it could possibly accurately describe all moral conversation that has ever happened anywhere. And then the question is, is this a universal thing or is it contingent? Is it dependent on uh, a historical process or is it in fact a universal? And that's where we end uh, chapter two. How was that? Did I get a decent I, chunk of it? 
I think that's a very good a good uh, summary of it. He he did go into some of the critiques of motivism, or no, I'm, I apologize. Well, he did critique it, but he also demonstrated how motivism rose up, particularly in Cambridge in 1903, and kind of showed some of the historical background of why it showed up then, kind of as part of this project of proving that philosophy does not rise up in a vacuum, but rather has a particular cultural context. Mm-hmm. Thomas? No, I think that's good. Um, yeah, there's some other stuff, but we'll get to that when I start with my questions. Okay. Um, and I think with that then, uh, that's that's about a summary. There's obviously more details. It's a lot of pages. I can only do around seven pages at a time because um, it's so dense. I hear you. This man knows his way around commas, just inset phrase after inset phrase, just go on for miles. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing is that, like, personally, I, I find that, like, on a paragraph by paragraph basis, um, like, like at the paragraph scale, he's very clear. <laughs> but, um, but an argument will be sustained over, like, in the case of chapter two, um, the argument, his sort of thesis of chapter two is being built, um, for that whole, whatever it is, 14 pages or 15 pages or whatever. And so even if he is, is very clear at the paragraph level, um, uh, I, I find that, that keeping all of the nuances, um, uh, sort of in the brain cache, uh, uh, is a challenge. Which I think part of the, part of the issue with this is that none of us are grad students in philosophy, all of whom they can kind of trade back and forth these sort of ideas just because they're so immersed in this that they like they'll they'll know immediately what exactly McIntyre's talking about when he mentions X, Y, or Z person in their philosophy. They 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 bring this whole context, um, and mm-hmm. so he can in essence do these shorthand. Uh, pieces and they'll 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 kind of bring this knowledge to the table whereas us three we may not have that exact context although in in defense of mcintyre it seems that for the amount of high level ideas that he's bringing really really dense moral philosophy as well as a whole context of other philosophers that he's wrestling with this is one of the more readable technical philosophy pieces that i've i've ever encountered so i i do like i i do somewhat want to praise him for at least bringing about a clarity of language that I honestly don't see from a lot of other philosophers. I mean, yeah, the prose is lucid for sure. Absolutely. I guess that's just the problem with reading. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on to. I'm loving it. Okay. Thomas, I believe you have some deep and probing questions that will help us to discuss this topic further. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know about deep, but, um, but okay. So just starting with the first chapter, um, in chapter one, as Brevin kind of summarized, McIntyre asks the question in this, um, imaginary world where this kind of, um, fragmented and decontextualized science is being examined by philosophy, would philosophy um, notice that uh, uh, this sort of bizarro world, empirical science, um, actually sort of was broken and um, incomplete and 
you know, didn't really work in the same way anymore. Uh, and he says that both uh, that, that analytical philosophy, phenomenology, and uh, existentialism, um, you know, three of the kind of major branches of uh, philosophical inquiry um, are, are all powerless to discover this fact. But this confused me a little bit. Um, and here I'm maybe running up against my ignorance of how like academic subdisciplines work, or sorry, f- philosophical um, su- subdisciplines work. Um, I-, I didn't see why not. Um, after all, um, in this very text, is he not um, using philosophy to uh, identify that there's a problem? Like, could there not be in this world with kind of bizarro, broken um, empirical science? Would Could there not be a bizarro world uh, McIntyre who um, uh, is using philosophy to um, discover this problem? So um, uh, sort of an initial pass at this question, you know, well, wait, aren't you doing philosophy right now by identifying this problem uh, is to say that, um, well, he, he says in the concluding pages of this chapter that what he considers his methodology to um, really be history, actually, uh, not philosophy. Um, and I, I don't really want to get too, I, I find discussions of trying to slice and dice, you know, which discipline is which kind of boring and tiresome, but um, but I do want to ask, why do you think that McIntyre um, thinks history um, or some kind of like messy hi- historico-philosophical <laughs> hybrid has the power to uh, investigate this problem while um, philosophy does not? I would love to take a crack at this. Uh, so my impression of McIntyre's argument pulling from that is the reason that philosophy can't real uh, can't wrestle with the question that he's bringing up is because academic philosophy as a discipline has only existed for X number of years since more or less the Enlightenment, which sort of starts to come up in later chapters. So because academic philosophy is specifically looking at philosophy and ethics as uh, with a certain um, pre-established epistemology, with a certain pre-established method of examining it, um, it's kind of like a vampire. It can't see itself uh, in the mirror because right before, or hypothetically, right before um, the break, the event, the breakdown uh, between ethics and actual praxis happened, um, or rather the philosophical history started right after that. So it can't look past that point properly because when it was established, it was established with historically contingent ideas about what a philosopher was, what a philosopher could do. Whereas with history, I think he thinks he can overcome um, some of that uh, precisely because he rejects the premise that the proper self is a rational being that can um, impartially judge between competing ethical philosophies like they're at a supermarket and they're just comparing and buying. Um, yeah. Stephen, anything? 
I, this is an important question. I think um, it's not just a simple matter of, well, is he doing history or philosophy? I, I, I think it would be a mistake to say that before, uh, sorry, I nearly said Anselm for some, uh, is reason, some reason, um, that before McIntyre, uh, you know, history of philosophy just wasn't a thing. I, I think it was, you did have people, you know, who would go back and look into what Socrates believed, what uh, Aristotle believed. But I think it would be a mistake to not realize how groundbreaking the idea is of how did this one particular cultural context impact certain philosophers. I think what he is doing is actually quite quite groundbreaking for this time. How did uh, how did Kant impact Kierkegaard? Um, and what about the cultures had were what what was baked into their cultures such that they would have to respond in this particular way? And I think that is that that does require a particular tool set that just philosophy or just history will not give. And so I think he does bring up a good point in that sheer analytical philosophy, where you're just looking at different sets of theories and going about the meta-ethical enterprise of analyzing one and saying why it's better than the other or what have you. I think he is correct in saying that the analytical philosopher just doesn't have the tool set because they're rejecting an entire half of this discussion that is of history. So I, I think I do understand what you're saying, but I think that his critique was primarily on analytic philosophy in its attempt to remove a lot of these thinkers from history and instead just compare them side by side. I mean, one of the things that he's very much against is the idea that you can abstract out moral principles um, or the ideas of philosophers at various times, you can abstract that out um, from their place and from their society where they were born. Like, if you don't have the Prussians, do you get? Do you have Hegel? I think McIntyre would say no. If you don't have industrial England, do you have Marx? That's a bad example, but the answer is no. Um, Certainly. Uh, yeah. So I, th I think at the same time, we we must be careful to not commit the naturalist fallacy of saying, "Well, we can explain where the ideas came from, therefore they're false." I think that's, and I I, I don't think that's his project at all. I think it, it is important. It is a very edifying process to understand where the these ideas are coming from because it does give a more well-rounded more well-rounded concept of why these ideas operate the way they do and what impacts they have because i mean that's that's part of the that's part of the enterprise of ethics is what effects they have of all branches of philosophy i would argue this is one of the most important ones because it's so applicable your ethics impact who you are as a person how you act and so if we see one particular ethical system have impacts on a society of X, Y, or Z, that's that's kind of empirical proof of what it will do and if it is good or bad or otherwise. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these are great answers. Um, I, I think context is probably the best answer so far um, that, that these... Uh, theories are just not intelligible um, uh, without their context. Um, part of me still, well, the follow-up question um, is one that um, any second grader knows, which is, well, why? But I think, uh, I think McIntyre will be getting to that uh, as time goes on. Um, but he I mean, even a little bit with his critique of emotivism and kind of his analysis on how it came about. But so, 
actually, you know what? Let, let, let's move on. I think this. I think the follow-up questions aren't won't be that that valuable. I do want to throw in a quick plug here. Um, McIntyre, you know, was writing in the '60s or whenever this book was published. '75, I don't know. Um, the early '80s. Early '80s. Wow, I was off by two decades. But the point is, uh, in terms <laughs> of, I I would like to throw a quick plug to our dear friend, uh, the Horseshoe Theory of Everything. Um, where you could say McIntyre would not be at home with, but make similar arguments to the type of postmodern arguments that puts everything entirely down to context, um, and in which you know there is no truth, but that which is uh, subjective to whatever or place or time, hmm. etc. Um, so it is interesting to see perhaps a similar um, uh, some some similar concepts from someone who would very much not be in. Uh, what we might consider the postmodern camp today. Certainly, well, I think. It's, it's, oh, sorry, go for it. Um, well, it, it's funny in the in the prologue to the third edition, um, McIntyre actually defends himself against the claim that he is a, a postmodernist. So this would seem to kind of lend some credence to your uh, McIntyre horseshoe theory, Revan. The horseshoe theory explains everything. Uh, it's it's brilliant. Uh, Stephen, you had something. Well, I I think postmodernism it, it certainly has quite a few flaws and whatnot. Um, I don't think anyone's gonna argue otherwise. At least not on this podcast. But I do love I, how postmodernism has flaws. <laughs> 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 what is postmodernism? <laughs> Sorry, what even um, is postmodernism? That's <laughs> never mind. I'll. Sh- <laughs> Uh, well, in any case, though, it does it does bring about the rather important idea, though, that ideas have context, and that there there is no thinker in the history of the world that has come context less. I mean, every everyone from Enlightenment before then, after them, they're all responding to particular ideas that have arisen. There's a there's a reason that the early nineteen hundreds. Uh, philosophers were so preoccupied with analytic philosophy because math and science was on the rise. The, so I, the, the one exception to this, though, that I, I, I just have to say is Kant. Um, as we all know, Kant was uh, never actually had a human form. He was a brain inside of a vat. He never experienced anything but pure rational logic. Um, and the, uh, the internal minefield of uh, the imagination, uh, sublime terror, Etc. So the the one exception is is Kant. Um, so you know, I I Kant he certainly didn't experience that. horniness. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that wrong rhetoric. Can you imagine? He, he definitely try- didn't. Can you imagine trying to make uh, you know rule uh, a a rule that you must will for all mankind, um, but rules about sex? Like, can you? That would wow. What a I, man! I, that would just ru- ruin everyone's day. It really would. But if anyone were to try, it would be Kant. It would be Kant. But he, but he never knew about it because he was a brain in a vat. Um, True. Yeah. What's that brain in a vat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. I can't find his quote on postmodernism. Oh, well. Alas. All right. Thomas, do you have another uh, question to... Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to um, follow up. Yeah, on question two... On, in chapter two, uh, chapter two is largely devoted to... Uh, discussing emotivism. So you've kind of already summarized emotivism for us once, um, but I'd like to um, ask, what is the difference between emotivism 
and um, intuitionism, another ideology he describes, uh, maybe not ideology, but another um, moral theory he describes, uh, which is kind of cited as being uh, sort of tied up in the origins of emotivism. I'm frantically fl flipping through my book, right? Yeah, I'm doing the same. In intuitionism. Okay. Yeah. What What is his definition of that? Because I am lost on that. Um. Yeah. Well, I just read this, so I don't know that well either. But um, but so, intuitionism. Uh, he cites uh, a more an English moral philosopher called um There's more. Oh, okay. Uh, as being the kind of main um sort of inventor uh of this theory right right so he was the predecessor so his intuitionism was the predecessor to emotivism right where in essence he he kind of his project was almost to break down any remaining structures around good and evil especially with regards to religion um he sees himself and most of his disciples see himself as kind of this grand liberator of uh, humanity from that. I think from uh, uh, his, his third premise, I quote in the sixth and final chapter of Principia Ethica, that, quote again, personal affections and aesthetic enjoyments include all the greatest and by far the greatest goods we can imagine. This is the ultimate and fundamental truth of moral philosophy, end quote. So I think the emotivists kind of took that and were just like, well, so all you're saying is that good is something that is pleasing to you. It's just aesthetic. Um, to which I think that's the logical response to that. If you're really saying, well, just, you know, aesthetic enjoyments are the greatest good. Well, you're just saying that good is what you prefer. Good is an emotional response. So yeah, when, whenever you, I say something such as this is good, all I really am saying is hurrah for this. So to provide a little bit of context, so G.E. Moore, um, I believe, was a member of something called the Bloomsbury Group, which had some of our uh, very fond cast of characters, including Virginia Woolf and uh, Sir John Maynard Keynes, the economist that shaped much of the modern world. Um, and this group met. They had garden parties and they hung out. Um, they were kind of like on Illuminati, but with a less cool name. Um, I, I mean, aren't, aren't they really they're, – they're sort of like um, the anti-inklings. Yes, that is a fantastic description. Yeah, I like that where, description. Where they're like, they're this literary circle, but instead of, um, I don't know, a, 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 a sort of traditional sort of Christian perspective, uh, we get, you know, well, yeah, you know the rest, Keynesianism I, and all that stuff. I, I'm very tempted to make, now that you just mentioned that, that they're basically polar opposites to do like a rat battle in between the Bloomsbury group and the Inklings. <laughs> I, th I think that would make a fantastic video. My money's on C.S. Lewis. That, that, that man would destroy people. One thing that, that I thought was funny and just also just kind of like intensely cringy in retrospect. Um, maybe that's too strong. Maybe just regularly cringy in retrospect um, is the way that they write so breathlessly about how G.E. Moore has destroyed um, Christian, uh, well, has destroyed like all um, sort of previous, he, he's liberated them from the past. So he, he's kind of broken the shackles and they write very breath breathlessly about how, uh, 
let's see, Leonard Wolf describes as substituting for the religious and philosophical nightmares, delusions, and hallucinations of Jehovah, Christ, and St. Paul, Plato, Kant, and Hegel had entangled us. The, uh, the fresh air and pure light of common sense. Ah. Um, <laughs> the amount of fawning is a little bit cringy. Certainly. Well, it, it's, it's just like we think about um, uh, the idea of like, something cringy we said one time being immortalized is so is so common is is so is so modern it seems like such a modern problem because uh you know the reason why we have worries about this is that we have smartphones and computers and you know even this podcast right now um you know so much of our life is now recorded permanently um but i was just kind of i just thought that was funny that um here we are now reading this uh very sort of ancient medium but even even you know 120 years ago or whatever these people are not are not free from the from the retrospective cringe a cringe compilation is just like a whole bunch of letters <laughs> from uh leonard wolf to john maynard Keynes, and they just like slowly flash up on the screen with just like this ancient language and you can just hear like ben shapiro in the background just like screaming and it's yeah i think we should make these um but the, i'm imagining the, these letters having little hearts with more in the center of them <laughs> the the other part of this chapter which is fantastic uh uh thomas is their breathlessness at finding this thing which good is now a non-material concept and it's related to aesthetics um and it's whatever uh the second principle of it is that um whatever is consequentially good, like produces the most good, but good is non-material and also subjective and aesthetic. So how do you measure all of this? And then when you read their accounts of the conversation that they had while finding out whether or not things were ethical, um, McIntyre goes through them and it's literally just whoever is the best speaker. It's entirely social power, manipulation, uh, or uh, verbal skills, etc. Um, and it's fascinating. It's it's all emotion, and and that's it. It's from that where McIntyre, I think, starts saying, "Well, they they thought they had something called intuitionism or, or whatever, but really, this is the birth of the acceptance of emotivism as a legitimate moral philosophy." Um, yeah. In defense of ethics and aesthetics being linked, from what I understand, it is not uncommon for the aesthetic to be enjoined as a path to the virtuous that that particularly good bits of poetry or music or what have you can encourage you to act in a virtuous way. From, from what I understand, there is a history of that, but I think the issue mainly lied in, in the attempt to completely equate the two and just to say, good is completely aesthetic there is kind of removal of the ethical and just leave the aesthetic there thomas did you have a another question to lead us on or are we now in open discussion time well we is we've sort of failed to to really clearly define and distinguish emotivism and intuitionism but i do have a so 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 we are de facto in open discussion but um, I do have to that end. I have a question about um, uh, about emotivism, and um, that's that it doesn't really make. Uh, I don't really follow their. I don't really follow the description of emotivism that well. So, so 
McIntyre describes three properties of intuitionism. Um, the first one is, is that G.E. Moore defines good as being simply the name of an indefinable property. Um, so we can't really say what it is, and it's kind of just it, it's kind of just up to you what uh, is meant by good. But then he goes on um, to say that what makes an action right is that it produces the most good. So that kind of sounds like utilitarianism, but instead of having the kind of objectivity of suffering and pleasure that um, a lot of like contemporary utilitarians have, um, he, uh, they, they don't, I guess they just have their indefinable uh, property version of good. Imagine being a consequentialist, but the things that you are consequential about are entirely imaginary. Um, and so, and so already, and, and so already, this this is a little bit confusing. Um, like your decision making is supposed to be defined by whatever has the like the the most of a good of the most of something that's by definition not uh, definable. <laughs> um, so anyway, but but then but then the third piece is one that you already described, which is that. Um, is is that quote personal affections and aesthetic enjoyments include all the greatest and by far the greatest goods we can imagine so um it may be that i just didn't read this very well but how can the greatest goods be personal affections and aesthetic enjoyments when the kind of first premise of intuitionism is that the good is a simple indefinable property they can't. And McIntyre says that G.E. Moore was an idiot and his three premises, while any one of them could work on their own, together they're incomprehensible and don't make sense. Um, but the what his point is, is with intuitionism, um, it's like emotivism, with emotivism saying that the only meaning, or more accurately, that all moral content is actually simply the expression of our emotions. Um, you got about halfway there with more, but more tried to hold on to the impersonal standard, the the impersonal external criteria, with his first uh, standard, which is that good is an immaterial property by which you can judge everything. But then the second two is where you get into just get the most of whatever is aesthetically pleasing, but by having the non-material good as whatever he's trying to measure, he's trying to hold on to the immaterial standard and ultimately failing. Um, and once, but then once you get rid of the uh, impersonal standard, then you just have full on emotivism where it's aesthetic or personal judgment. And then you just get the most of whatever that is. It, it seems that the the second, his second premise, the, uh, the pretty much utilitarianism just phrased differently. seems like that you could either give or take with both intuitionism, emotivism, uh, you, it, it doesn't seem that it's really required. In fact, I'm almost surprised that he that he ran. Well, I suppose especially back then, with utilitarianism still being on the rise, like he he probably felt required that he needed to to still have this this endeavor to maximize the amount of good, uh, the amount of this single indefinable property. It's just then he really screwed up and added the third pretty explicitly contradictory uh, premise. 
which McIntyre punished him quite rightly for. And then I guess people just naturally were like, well, you're kind of contradicting yourself. And now it's just a kind of a social arena battle and therefore emotivism. So I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, th- no, did you have some follow up to that? Uh, I had less of a follow up and more of the next step of uh, the conversation, maybe. Well, I, I was going to ask, um, you know, if we're continuing on from uh, intuitionism to emotivism, um, I was wondering if um, either of you could uh, briefly restate um, what emotivism is again, and then and then pose a, just a general question of, you know, McIntyre seems to think that emotivism describes um, sort of how people. Uh, n- not just academics, but just how sort of just sort of normal people uh, think about ethics day to day. What 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 do we think of that? Um, do do we think that emotivism um, uh, describes people's um, sort of ethical intuitions well? Uh, so I have I have the definition um, right here on page eleven. Uh, emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments and more specifically all moral judgments are nothing but the expression of expressions of preference expressions of attitude or feeling insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character particular judgments may of course unite moral and factual elements arson being destructive of property is wrong unites the factual judgment that arson destroys property with the moral judgment that arson is wrong and then goes on to more examples and such I, I will say that there is somewhat of a, a disquieting uh, idea that people do seem to, especially in our, our more postmodern society, they do seem to go about whether implicitly or explicitly, whether knowing it or not, holding on to the idea that kind of the the conception of ethics, it really is just one person saying that they would prefer it this way or not. And you do kind of run into this, especially when doing any sort of political discussion or ethical discussion or religious discussion or really anything remotely close to the realm of philosophy. It does seem to be, well, that's just your opinion, man. To build off of uh, Stephen, the question or the argument that McIntyre takes at emotivism is there's sort of two classes, two classes of emotivism. The first is the idea that all um, all moral statements are, as a theory of meaning, that a moral statement um, means simply whatever feelings you are feeling at the moment. And he does a takedown of this that I don't have the acumen to relate very well, but if I recall, it's something along the lines of, in, in that case, he... I, I, can, I can take a crack at it. Go for it. Yeah, so for the theory of meaning, um, I I think the problem is that you say, uh, but when we discuss meaning, he's he's saying if someone says something is good, um, what good means the meaning of good is that um, my uh, just you know my particular um uh judgments say that it's good they're my preferences my my preferences say that it's good but if you're to ask 
um, well, what kind of um, preferences are they? Um, the response is, uh, well, it can be a couple of things, but the, the kind of main response is, well, they're moral preferences. And then you say, well, what are moral preferences? And, um, uh, and then you go full, full circle. You, you say, well, what does it mean for a preference to be moral? Well, it's a, well, to be moral, it's a preference about the good. What is the good? The good is whatever my moral preferences are. Okay, well, what kind of preferences uh, are your moral preferences? Well, they're moral preferences. And it's like, well, this is actually, he, he calls it vacuously circular. Um, uh, That's rough. So That's like getting smacked in the face. Uh, so anyway, I, to the extent that I understand it, that's his takedown of um, uh, the meaning uh, theory of a, of a motivism. Yeah. Which, and, I, oh, sorry. Go for it. Oh, just uh, but the the second form of it, which is the theory of use, which is sort of a seeing it as a socio as sort of a sociological explanation of how do people talk about morality. Um, and what he observes in modern society, and this is his enemy that he sets up to try and fight. Um, because if this is true, then his theory can't be correct. Um, but if it's false, then there's a chance that it's correct. And the theory of use is simply that people um, use their that their moral preferences, or that their morality and the terms that they set on it are ultimately non-rational. There is no ultimate appeal that can be made. Um, and they come down to preferences in the end. And then the question that he asks, which sort of defines the rest of the book is, is this the way it always has been? Is this a universal definition or is it contingent? Is there some place where this was not necessarily the case? Um, and, and if he can prove that it's contingent and that it happened or that it happens in a pattern, um, then he has a chance to prove his thesis. Which I, I'm interested, I, want, I, I honestly kind of forget if he goes into this, he may with, uh, with Nietzsche, but I wonder how he would respond to the emotivist who doubles down and says, yes, it is vacuously uh, circular, because really all this is is you know, language games that we're playing. We're not really saying anything because the entire enterprise of ethics is, is moved. It kind of embracing the more nihil embracing nihilism nihilism on a moral level or on an ethical level and i wonder if he would have a response i mean his response may very well be okay well society's over we're all we're all just going to do what we want now um and he may confront this with nietzsche i honestly forget but i would be interested in his response to someone who doubles down on this well i well i'm not sure exactly but I mean, maybe he would just say that that's not actually a motivism, um, because a motivism, because uh, because so far he's not actually made um, an ethical proposal. Really, he's just trying to he he's just been making descriptive claims about what things are. So I think, at least from the standpoint of chapter two, I think he would probably just say. Well, that wouldn't be emotivism. Emotivism says that we can make statements, but those statements are really just about our preferences. <clears throat> okay. Well I, well, I mean, and the follow-up is that um, I think McIntyre sees claims made by people like Nietzsche as 
vaguely similar to not to emotivism, but to observing emotivism in that there is no more standard. God is dead. There is nothing to which we can judge things against. All we can do is vie socially with power for creating whatever values that are. Um, obviously, he thinks Nietzsche is off his rocker in other ways, but I think Nietzsche's appear in recognizing the emergence of uh, the lack of standard. It is interesting because he was writing around, roughly around the time that uh, that these folks, uh, the the respond responders to Moore, were writing, and so it would somewhat follow that they had similar responses. One was just kind of embracing um, kind of crypto emotivism. I'm not sure if they called it that at the time, and then the other just saying, "Well, yeah, there's no more objective standard, and uh, we're or you're saying that there's an objective standard, but then at the same time you're also saying." that it's just your aesthetic enjoyment well uh in that case i'm going to embrace the aesthetic enjoyment and i'm going to you know or i'm going to say that now the person who becomes ubermensch needs to skip beyond this concept of good and evil because those are just preferences and start using their social power to be able to bring about whatever whatever goods that they uh, so desire all right um and so we're about at the one hour mark which means we should be trans at a somewhat despondent and sad point. Uh, Thomas, anything you want to add or mention briefly about this first dive into McIntyre? Yeah. Well, um, concluding with the, or not quite concluding, with the discussion of the use theory of emotivism ties up nicely with my initial question, which is why is history the important um, investigative method. And um, I think your description of the use theory of emotivism um, reveals why. Um, and it's because we, we would need to find, for, for McIntyre to make his case, he would need to find um, a society where um, uh, morality is not e emotive, emotively used um, and so, uh, and so, um, so yeah, that's kind of the quest going forward, I think, is the search for a society that does not employ the emotive, uh, the use theory of emotivism for its morality. And, um, the way to do that, uh, is to look to history. So that makes sense to me. One could say he's in a metaphysical wasteland searching for a home. <laughs> <laughs> one could say that. Uh, and uh, one... And he just did. And he just did. Yep, uh, I, I did. One could also give their concluding thoughts on chapters one and two. Stephen, it's your <laughs> Well, uh, as that one, I certainly will. I, I think he did a good job setting up both the idea that something horrible has happened in the realm of ethics, in particular philosophy in general, I one one of the the issues I did somewhat have was in the first chapter he in essence said the lack of evidence is itself evidence that this happened which I thought was a little bit of sleight of hand that he was attempting so I I do wish that he had taken a little bit more time to make the case that this did happen um however chapter 2 and I think we'll see in 3 and 4 he he continues to make the case that what is happening in our current society, in our current, shall we say, metaphysical wasteland, 
is a particular instance in history and somewhat the first that has ever arisen. So I think he argues, he, he starts arguing quite compellingly that this did happen. And I am thoroughly looking forward to him showing us what to do therefore. Uh, for my concluding thought, I would say that reading these two chapters has been a very um, enriching experience in that there is so much detail and so much about history that we don't know, that we overlook, um, that we don't realize even existed. Uh, McIntyre will just have offhand phrases for things, and you're like, wow, that is a fantastic thought. Um, unfortunately, only being in chapters one and two, or perhaps uh, simply by the fact that I do not have a mind as uh, adept and, um, well, I'm just not as smart as McIntyre. <laughs> so, so I am somewhat lost uh, as what to do with all these cool, uh, found facts and ideas, um, but it was uh, well worth the trip, and as we move towards criticizing the Enlightenment, uh, uh, throwing modernity into a wood chipper, etc., I, I, I think this will be a good time. <laughs> I blame Malcolm. Well, we a, blame a, Malcolm. Qu a question about that. Uh, have either of you read A Canticle for Leibowitz? I have read a canticle for Leibowitz. It's so good. I, not. I I really want to. It's on my list. I I've also read it. Um, although it's been a while. Um, so in a canticle for Leibowitz, as Brevin knows, the um the great catastrophe is um is nuclear war. Twice. Um, and what I'm wondering is, uh, so predictions going ahead, uh. You're you're both ahead of me in the reading, so maybe you already know. But I, I'm wondering if the Great Cataclysm uh, is the Enlightenment. Spoilers. Yeah. Go, Stephen. Uh, no spoilers, but yes, uh, it is. <laughs> um, I, I, from from what I recall, I don't think he quite. Yeah, he doesn't quite necessarily get into it. Um, I think he starts toying with it in chapter four, but chapter five is where he, it really starts picking up that uh, the Enlightenment really did um, start screwing things up. Uh, and if it makes I feeling knew better. it was the Enlightenment. It's it's always the Enlightenment. Um, it's it's like a Scooby-Doo episode where it's like, man, this looks like a real moral failing and catastrophe in our modern world. What is it? Is it this monster? No. You pull off the, the mask and it's, ah, oh, damn it, it's, but it's the Enlightenment again. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it worked for you dang kids. And, you and your McIntyre. Well, and your historical method. If you'd only <laughs> stuck with, with analytical philosophy, I would have gotten away with it. <laughs> okay. Precisely. Um, cool. Uh, well, uh, let's, uh, move on to our, uh, final, well, final three segments. Um, <laughs> now, in addition to what we've been reading, uh, this week, which are all sorts of fun books and such, uh, we've all also brought some articles that we have read over this past week or before that we'd like to recommend. Uh, Thomas, I believe you would like to go, or, well, you can go first if you wish. My article of the week is an opinion piece in the New York Times entitled My New Vagina Won't Make Me Happy and It Shouldn't Have To by Andrea Long Chu. I won't make Andrea's case for her, but uh, I will read you her conclusion. She says, But I also believe that surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want. 
Beyond this, no amount of pain, anticipated or continuing, justifies its withholding. Now, I've just taken this quote out of context, and you should go read uh, that context for yourself. But uh, I found this perspective on medicine to be fascinating. Um, I've heard that it has been quite common, actually, for quite some time in the trans community, but it is new to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a fascinating article. So you should read it. This sounds intriguing. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, what's your article for the week? So I was listening to a book on tape, uh, David Foster Wallace's Consider the Lobster, and he cited this one particular article by George Orwell called Politics in the English Language, in which he goes through concerning trends that he sees, uh, George Orwell, that is, in the English language, in that there is, it, he, and he's speaking primarily to two forms of the English language, to academia and to uh, well, politics. So that primarily politicians and um, and like professors and academics will use a particular almost dialect of the English language in order to intentionally obscure their meaning. And he he breaks down exactly how how this is done um, in various ways. He, he categorizes, I think it's four or five different ways of uh, doing so by using. Uh, what he calls dying metaphors or stuff that the metaphor has almost completely been lost. Uh, for example, um, uh, toe the line. And he used, he used the idea of toe the line in that it's normally spelled T-O-E. So you're, you're towing an actual line as in your foot is resting on the line, getting closer to that line. Um, but some writers are starting to say toe, T-O-W. He's using that as evidence that this metaphor is getting completely lost and people are in essence taking these metaphors and starting to piece them together without even knowing what they mean. And it obscures your meaning rather than elucidates your meaning, which is what a metaphor is supposed to do. Uh, it's he also... almost as if there was a catastrophe that caused us to lose the content. Mm, it all is coming together now. Um, but I mean, he, he argues quite compellingly that this is, this is a real problem that is starting to happen. Uh, he gives a pretty devastating account of, uh, what he calls pretentious addiction, uh, or, or you know, just over flowering up your, your, uh, language to the point where nobody understands what you're saying. And here, here's arguably the best, uh, account for that I've heard. So, um, he gives, uh, a, a verse from Ecclesiastes, uh, which is, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And then he, quote unquote, translates it to modern English. Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities exhibits no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must be must invariably be taken into account. And he, he, wow. he just, I know <laughs> it's incredible how he does a very good job at showing how language that is theoretically more intelligent supposed to be more precise how it is used to completely mask actual meaning and 
it's it's done to distance oneself from being taken to be wrong. He says that a lot, oftentimes the worst thing is he says that it's even to ourself that we'll come up with a sentence, speak that sentence, but we've done so in such a way that it's not clear, it's not even clear how to prove that it's right or wrong. So we can be convinced that we're right. Our friends can be convinced that we're right. Whereas if we had brought it down to more simple language, we the moment the sentence left our mouth, we'd realize that, oh, wow, I'm an idiot. I'm wrong. And uh, I, should, I should probably rethink that. So I, I, I just really appreciated that idea of don't necessarily flower up your language, don't necessarily, or, and watch what metaphors you're using, et cetera, et cetera. And he gives, he gives a nice set of six rules to, um, to kind of help prevent that, which I really appreciated. So would highly recommend Politics in the English Language by George Orwell. Uh, for my own article of the week, I was found in the December edition of First Things Magazine by Robert Williams, and the article is entitled T.S. Eliot Populist. Uh, it's mostly a summary laying out the argument in T.S. Eliot's notes toward the definition of culture, um, but what blew my mind was its complication of the sort of standard, rote, Marxist ideas of class uh, that seem to be passed to all of us somewhat by osmosis. Uh, Eliot distinguishes between upper class and elite, uh, between culture and anti-culture, um, and he has a very class-positive uh, view of things where upper class creates high culture, which is positive and builds off of the folk culture of the lower classes, which is entirely distinct from popular culture in that it's not commodifiable, it arises from day-to-day -day activities, um, and sort of the nightmare version of all of this is where you have the elite, which are a subset of the upper class, but uh, a group that goes to only very specific universities um, and sort of has a existence that's separate from their class identity and responsibility. Um, they create anti-culture that thrives on negating culture and violating norms and sacred things. You can think here um, modern art is a fantastic example of this. Um, uh, modern literature in some ways, uh, depending on the book. Um, but I found it most fascinating simply as a uh, view on class and culture and the legitimacy of both, the possibilities with both, um, in a way that I have never seen from another author that complicated the rather um, naive and juvenile notion that I inherited um, from the Marxist narrative. Um, so that was fascinating. Highly recommend. Um, our final segment of this podcast before, well, our final official segment, I should say, are the rants. Uh, so something that I suppose you loved or hated, but most likely hated. Um, Steven, what's your rant for this week? So just this week, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to uh, have a, an ethics dialogue with uh, some of my coworkers, uh, my, my, my team. We generally have once every two or three weeks a, uh, you know, this team learns blank. And most of the time it's something related with technology. Uh, I'm a software engineer for our listeners. Uh, most of the time this is related to some form of technology, some form of language or code or, or what have you. But I had just gotten back from the Notre Dame Ethics Conference and they, they wanted to, to hear about ethics. So they asked me to do a brief uh, sum up of the history of ethics and some of the ethical uh, you know, problems that we come across. And so I happily said yes and uh, did a nice uh, history of ethics. And one of the things that absolutely bugs me is the amount of 
dead quiet that hit the room when I very, very objectively just said, okay, well, one of the first ethical uh, frameworks that ever came into mind from the history of humanity, religion, divine command theory, that some higher power imparted to us some form of divine law that we would do well to follow. I mentioned every major religion, kept as impartial as I could, did not, I mean, did not advocate and was very quick to point out the pros and the cons and the amount of quiet followed up with one person just immediately saying, but don't religions do a lot of harm? It's like, yes, yes, they do. But this is an important part of human history. Even if you don't believe in it, this is such an important part of human history and you just want to write it out. You can't do that. And so it, 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 it drives me nuts that these sort of ethical conversations are, so, or not even ethical, but well, in this particular case, religious, but these sort of conversations almost just ipso facto cannot happen in the workplace because people are so either afraid to bring up this this notion, hostile to the notion, or some mix of some such. And it, it, it really hobbles any sort of conversation around ethics or religion in this particular case. But appeal to any sort of objective standard becomes really difficult. Um, so y yes, the hobbling of ethical and philosophical conversations. Thomas, what's your rant? Um, well, we'll just follow up. Um, Stephen, did McIntyre speak at the at the conference? He did indeed, and it was oh, it, it yeah. was quite good. Uh, his his main discussion was on uh, rights based language versus justice based language, and I, I, uh, I thought it was quite well done. <clears throat> Interesting. Well, well, I guess we'll talk more offline about that. But yeah. um, anyway, rant of the week. Um, uh, my rant is that the Orthodox are Anglican. Um, I'll just briefly uh, defend this claim. Uh, okay, so what are the defining uh, facets of Anglicanism? Um, one, it's tied to um, a European nation. Uh, the head of the church is the Queen of England. Um, uh, its, its name is tied to a nation. Uh, second thing, um, Anglicans often have beautiful liturgies. Um, weirdly, the, uh, well, a lot of Anglo-Catholics in particular have done a much better job of defending the traditional um, sort of Latin Christian liturgy um, than uh, Roman Catholics have. Um, so, so we have, um, you know, ruled by a particular nation, uh, European nation, uh, nice liturgy, and three um, kind of a lot more morally permissive than um, uh, certainly than Roman Catholicism. So let's let's take these three criteria and look at uh, orthodoxy. So who is head of the Moscow Patriarchate? Um, uh, that's Vladimir Putin, of course, the de facto king of Russia. Um, <clears throat> uh, what do their liturgies look like? Um, the Orthodox are, their strong suit is screeching about old church Slavonic and how many fingers you're using to cross yourself and um, making sure, my chair. This is making, making, sure <laughs> making sure the calendar doesn't change. Um, they've done a great job at that, way better than um, we in the in the uh, Latin Occident have. So, um, so, uh, so, so far uh, we see, we have beautiful liturgy and ruled by the king of a European nation. Um, so thir third thing, uh, moral laxity, the 
the Orthodox um, uh, permit both divorce and contraception, um, uh, much like the Anglicans do. So, um, uh, so I, I, I rest my case. Uh, the Orthodox are Anglican. Um, and QED. Uh, <laughs> uh, for my man, eyes in my chair as well. <laughs> We'll 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 get into some some slap fighting later. Uh, but for my rant, this uh, an advertisement uh, came across my Spotify today, and it was something like uh, "Soon coming to a city new near you is Disney Acapella," which they literally named Decapella, Decapella. I don't even know. And it was advertised as seven voices. They didn't even give names. Singing all your classic Disney Channel hits. Uh, there were no names, no personality. It's literally Walt Disney Corporation presents the lyrical corpses of the childhood songs you know and love. Uh, <laughs> Disney is worth $100 billion and as such is a heartless, mechanical, sentient bureaucracy, and this ad proved it. I can only wonder how many young, aspiring singers Disney has recruited, corrupted, and tramp-stamped with Walt Disney's smiling fascist face. Um, and with my rant out of the way... Uh, we are now towards the end of the official part of this episode. Um, it's been a fun run. Uh, this has been a good time. So, uh, Thomas, any final words? Uh, Orthodox or Anglican, uh, remember it. Uh, dedicate it to memory. Uh, tell your friends. Uh, Stephen, any final words? Catholics are shills of the Pope. Uh, remember it. I dedicate that to Thomas. Uh, that's That's true, actually. Um, anyway, I mean, who wouldn't want to be shills for the only uh, head of the church? Um, Even that uh, your microphone cut out for most of that, I agree. Damn it. Okay, whatever. But for my uh, final word, um, my final word is anti-fragile. Let those <laughs> things that stress you make you stronger. Uh, don't be fragile. Don't be resilient. Grow. Yeah, you snowflakes. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll see you next week. I'm Brevin. That's I'm Thomas. Steven. Oh, sorry. Hold on. Let's try that again. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Thomas. And this has been The Problem with Reading. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown Accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving So you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing What the fuck? Come writers and critics, from size with your pen And keep your